0: Hey everybody, welcome to week three of Plague Podcast. Um, I hope everybody's doing okay. Um, for those of you who can't stay home, I hope you're staying home. And For those of you who can't, you know, stay safe as possible. Um, this week we're going to be continuing on in this, this little post-World War II chunk um, and looking at um, major migration changes. Um, immigration changes after world war ii so we looked at the korean-american war sorry the korean war um, and korean migration we looked at um, vietnam and laos um, and migration from southeast asia and today we're going to take a look at um, renewals of chinese and filipino migration and also um, immigration from southeast asia so okay i guess we'll start now Okay, so if we took a look at this first slide um, that just has overall U.S. numbers, it says today, but it's actually 2000 and 2010 um, for Asian Americans um, in the U.S. Um, If you look at the overall numbers, I mean, the top five groups, um, well, the top six groups, right? Chinese and Indian, Filipino, Vietnamese, um, Korean, and Japanese. Um, Japanese migration, mostly we're looking at that it's mostly that pre-1905 migration um, in large numbers and then just sort of growing families, etc. With the Koreans and Vietnamese, um, a lot of that migration is going to be connected to and related to the wars that we talked about. Um, but still pretty large numbers, um, initially coming out of the Vietnam War, initially coming out of the Korean War, and then after that um, sort of growth um, within the Filipino-American, or Vietnamese-American community, growth within the Korean-American community, um, and then uh, further migration coming uh, from those 1960 acts. Um, so there's a growth of a, of a um, sort of second and third generation community. Um, and in addition, you have um, continual migration coming from um, Korea, um, less so from Vietnam uh, because of the relations between Vietnam and the United States. Um, and then finally, you have, um, yeah, uh, the guys we're going to look at today is uh, Filipino migration. Um, there's already, a, you know, a substantial Filipino community before World War II, um, but that will grow after World War II. Same thing with the Chinese community. And then we'll take a look at the um, Indian community and more South Asian in general. Um, and that's mostly going to be post 1960. Now a big part of things, especially for the Chinese and for the Filipinos, is gonna be um, a renewal of migration. So there were, these are old migrant groups, right? There is already a substantial Chinese migration in the, um, before the Chinese um, Exclusion Act, there was substantial Filipino migration from 1903 until 1938. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. and then it ends, and then it, um, because of World War Two, and because of the Cold War, um, and that 1965 Immigration Act that we talked about, that removed all the quotas, um, and it basically opened it up. So instead of we'll only allow you know this many Filipinos and this many Germans in, it's we'll allow, it's open to everybody, um, and instead we're going to be looking for people with skilled, um, skills and education. Um, will go to the top of the list regardless of country of origin. Um, so these groups, um, the Chinese and the Filipinos, there will be a huge um, sort of boom in the Chinese and Filipino population in the United States um, as a result of renewals of immigration in addition to the existing populations that are already here and established at that point you know like really well established in hawaii for instance you know the chinese and the filipino populations are very well established in california as well Um, but here we're going to see sort of a renewal of of immigration and and leading to much larger communities that's lbj there um, signing with bobby kennedy in his over there i don't know some kind of kennedy Okay, before we start on this one, I just want to say, it's definitely not JFK, because you know, LBJ's president, that means JFK's dead, and it's 65, not 63. But seriously, they all kind of do look the same, so I think that's a Bobby, I don't know, maybe it's a Teddy. Anyway, off topic. Um, so the, one of the first groups where we're going to see this renewal of migration is going to be um, the Chinese, who for a long time had really been the focus of anti-Asian racism in the United States, Um, going back to the Exclusion Acts, like, in 1882, um, and even earlier in California, these efforts to just, like, attack the Chinese and attack Chinese migration as sort of the the worst possible thing in the world. I mean, this is, you know, when we go back to the beginning of the term, this really, really virulent anti-Chinese racism. Um, And so that's 1882, there's an Exclusion Act, Um, There's still some limited migration, um, family visas, et cetera, through 1924, Um, but 1924, they cut everything off completely. Now, um, the 1943 uh, Magnuson Act, what it's going to allow is um, existing uh, Chinese migration into the U.S., or sorry, existing Chinese in the U.S. who are not uh, citizens, allowing them to naturalize. Now, the... um, it's kind of this weird situation where even though technically there's no migration, um, you still do have there. I mean, look, it's the law and the law is composed of loopholes. Um, there are ways to get in. One is the merchant exemption. Um, there's ways if you are uh, if you're a merchant, you could bring family, um, or, um, workers over. Um, and so if you're a merchant, you could do that, but you could, there's this thing called the, um, the restaurant loophole um, where restaurants, when, when restaurants started to qualify as loopholes, you'd get a bunch of your friends together, take turns being the, like you put all your money together to own the restaurant, which is, you know, a, one of the few ways that if you're a Chinese, you're able to make money um, outside of Chinatown. Um, or sometimes in Chinatown is running a restaurant, but you pull all your money together. You take turns being the CEO of the corporation running the restaurant. And as you're, when you're the CEO, you can bring your family in. Because you are qualified as a merchant, because you're a business owner, you're running the business. Um, and then you just sort of take turns every 18 months, you get a new CEO. And then whoever's the new CEO, it's their turn to start sort of bringing family over. So there are, even with the Chinese Exclusion Act, there are actually you know, small but still, still noticeable numbers of, of people migrating to the US. Um, and the 1943 Magnuson Act allows them. Um, and anyone who had come in before and would have been super old by this point, um, to uh, naturalize, to become an American citizen. Because for some of them, you know, they, they would have been here for 50 years um, and not been allowed to naturalize because the naturalization acts were explicitly racial. Um, you could only naturalize white citizens. Um, sorry, you could only nat- naturalize white immigrants um, to become citizens. Um, now, so you know, this ends the Chinese Exclusion Act, so it allows for some legal migration outside of the loopholes it allows existing chinese in the u.s to naturalize but it actually keeps a number of visas still super low um, much lower by percentage than it should have been by law if you follow the 1924 act um, but it's still at least allowing some migration um, and another thing is this does i mean there's also family migration etc so there are people coming through? It's just still really low numbers that the main thing about this act is that we're no longer seeing that sort of open, explicit suppression of Chinese immigration specifically. Um, like they're not just attacking the Chinese and saying, you, the Chinese can't come in. They're now saying, well, you can come in, it's just in limited numbers. And numbers wise, it doesn't matter that much, but in terms of overall posture, I mean, this is really important. Um and you know the the obvious answer why the question is why are they doing this in nineteen forty three? And the obvious answer is well, because there are allies in the war. <laughs> it's very hard for us to be allies with the Chinese um republic um when we're we're um excluding their citizens from coming into the US. So a lot of this was PR. This is keeping those strong connections with the Chinese because the Chinese are fighting the Japanese we're fighting the Japanese and we want to have a closer and tighter relationship and this was for a long time this had been a sticking point in the u.s Chinese relationship as we treated China um, very poorly um, in terms of Chinese migration like why can German migrants come into the U.S., but Chinese migrants can't? This is a very sort of, you know, it's clearly a very racist thing. Um, and the Chinese government was aware of this and this was, is was something the Chinese government wanted changed. Um, it's, they don't want to be, uh, you know, no one wants to be treated like this by their allies. Um, I mean, you obviously don't want to be treated like this by your enemies, but scrum, them, you're your enemies. Um, you don't want to be treated like this by their allies. OK, so when we're talking about Chinese migration after World War II, um, a lot of that migration, you know, initially um, until 1949, the migration, a lot of it will come from mainland China um, under these sort of pretty restrictive rules. After 1949, however, almost all the migration is going to come from Taiwan and Hong Kong. So in 1949, the communists take over the majority of China. right, And that's the, the modern day China, ruled by the, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, that's 1949 onwards. Mao successfully um, defeats the, the Republicans. Um, the majority of the government moves over to Taiwan. Um, and a lot of the supporters of the, the republic and just a lot of people who are just, if they were able to, um, fled, uh, went to Taiwan and set up... Um, basically set up another government there. Um, so you have these two Chinese governments. You have the Taiwanese government. You have um, the Chinese Communist Party. Both of them early on will argue that they're the only real Chinese government. Um, but eventually Taiwan, um, Taiwan will come to accept that they rule Taiwan. And that's about it. China will continue to argue that Taiwan doesn't really exist as a separate entity. Um, the Chinese Communist Party still to this day does not admit that Taiwan exists as a as a country um, and that it's just a, a rogue a, a rogue state um, that they're going to try and um, absorb back in um, so since we don 't really have the best of relationships with the Chinese Communist Party um, until you know we don 't have any relationship really until the 1970s under Nixon and then we don't have a very good relationship until probably the 90s Um, so there's really no migration from mainland China or very little migration from mainland China um, and and also because the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want a lot of people leaving they're supposed to like stay and help build China Um, until the 90s there's really no migration even today it's relatively little from mainland China itself Uh, the majority of the population when you're looking at migration is gonna come from Taiwan or from Hong Kong. Um, and like, so Taiwan is already has a separate sort of sense of like its history um, as this break off, as like the people who fled, the people who retained this sort of sense of democracy and, and the Republic. Um, Hong Kong on the other hand was a British colony um, and has this very sort of hybrid um, british chinese identity it's very cosmopolitan um so hong kong and taiwan um that's where most of the migration is going to come from so you're going to have separate communities um forming sort of like the term you know chinese migration one china was already big and now you're talking about really three different separate political and cultural um, places communist china where we're having very little migration from taiwan um, and hong kong um, and so, you know, the term Chinese migration is a very sort of catch-all term. The U.S. census won't really catch any difference there, um, but we really should think about them as as forming separate communities, um, and separate reasons for migration or migration, separate connections back to um, to different homes, et cetera. So after, you know, this is. Until 1965, it's still running off of those very low, low um, visa numbers, but also a pretty high number of people coming in through, you know, family migration through some of those loopholes we talked about. Um, after 1965, however, with the changes in the migration laws, there is going to be this big push for skilled labor and white collar migration. Um, and the skilled labor, so you know, it's people tend to think of the white collar part of this law, um, so doctors, engineers, etc. Um, but even in the skilled labor side, people coming in, um, welders, et cetera, with this sort of labor background, um, and that's that's a major part of the post 1965, especially you know Taiwanese migration. A lot of people um, who were who may have come, come as students um, and trained the United States, um, but also people who came in um, as engineers or doctors, um, and create this this pretty substantial white-collar middle-class Chinese-American community, right? Um, At the same time, what gets kind of ignored in this is there's also a relatively large um, lower-wage migration that occurs, and some of that is a result of um, family migration, um, people being able to bring in, you know, bear chunks of their family. Um, some of this is going to be the result of people um, coming in undocumented, um, coming on on travel visas and overstaying them, that sort of thing. Um, and this is going to create, a, you know, on the surface, this vision of um, it kind of falls into the the model minority um, stereotype of. You know the established middle class white collar Chinese migration um, of doctors and lawyers, etc. But there's also this other um, very strong um, working class um, migration that occurs, and there's um, something of a divide between the two. Um, but also, there ends up being this kind of um, that white collar by the 1980s and 1990s that vision of the sort of the the white collar migrant will largely overshadow the existence of the working class um, Chinese community um, or Chinese migrant community like people who had recently migrated etc in addition to kind of covering up that longer standing law you know Chinese-American community that's been around since the, the 1860s and 1870s. So when we look at just numbers, um, you know, like we said, there was already a substantial Chinese population in the United States um, right up until that exclusion era. So 107,000 um, in 1890, because of the exclusion laws, et cetera, you see that drop uh, by 1900 we're down to 89,000 1910 71,000 so some of that drop is people migrating back but a lot of it is because many of the people who migrated were um were single men um so they're not sort of cr- as able to create community etc but 1920 1930 the population stabilizes um through the 1940s around 70 you know 60 70,000 communities are forming etc um, and then you see this growth between 1940 and 1960. Um, and again, you know, the, the laws don't really, the big change in the law happens in 1965. Um, but we're still seeing pretty substantial growth between 1940 and 1960, even with those very low numbers um, of, on, you know, from the visas, uh, very low numbers of people being able to, to come in because of the visas. Um, it, it doesn't matter. Um, we're still seeing huge growth in the population. Um, yes, yeah, what is this? 1940 to 1950, 51% of the population, or 51% growth. Um, and then from 1960 onward, it just, you know, it grows more and more and more and more rapidly. Um, and this is, you know, this is one of the reasons that there's. The, the existing Chinese-American communities do kind of get erased from the public image um, by more recent migration is uh, just on numbers alone. And another thing uh, when we're looking at demographics is, and this is, this map is from the 2010 census, um, is where, do, where does the population tend to move? Um, and it's usually even though the migration itself is a much newer migration, there is a tendency to go to similar spaces that were already sort of carved out by existing um, those existing communities. So um, San Francisco, um, right? Huge Chinese um, community there before and after this. Um, Honolulu, like Hawaii, not just Honolulu, but Hawaii in general. Um, and, you know... <laughs> tends to be the West Coast, partly just because of of location, but partly because of um, existing um, Chinese-American communities there. Um, And then New York, because it's New York. Um, Like, everybody moves to New York. Okay, so the second group we're going to look at are Filipinos. Um, When you, yeah, there's already a large existing Filipino um, population in the United States. The migration we had looked at was primarily between 1903 um, and the 1930s, and it tended to be, um, but was not exclusive to single men um, brought in for labor in California, um, the West Coast, and Hawaii. Um, there are families being formed, There are communities being formed, um, but in 1934, there's the Philippine Independence Act is signed in the by the U.S. Um, by the U.S. government, um, also called the let's see, Tidings Tidings Act, McDuffie Act, um, and the the act does two major things. One is it guarantees that um, the U.S. will work towards Filipino independence, the independence of the Philippines itself, it, within ten years. And it will take actually twelve years. World War II does interfere with this. Um, Filipino independence does come from this act. However, um, the other part of it is is from that, from the signing of the act onwards, um, Filipinos in the United States will be classified as aliens. So before they're US nationals, which gave them some very limited rights, like we talked about before, there's very, very limited. You couldn't serve on juries, et cetera. Um, Your rights were like severely curtailed. very little power because you can't vote and you can't serve on juries um however um as aliens they have even fewer rights and in addition um it's as aliens um increase like filipino migration after 1934 um will be under different rules so before where there's pretty much a free flow of of um of migration after 1934 Migration to the U.S. mainland is going to be limited to like 50, 50 visas a year or something like that. So it's not cut off completely. Um, and in addition, you know, there, there's always loopholes. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's that those 50 visas a year. One major exception is going to be migration to Hawaii. Um, Filipino migration to Hawaii is not restricted during this period because Hawaii is a territory. So they're able to wiggle, have a little wiggle room. And the plantations in Hawaii were so dependent on Filipino labor um, and a constant supply of Filipino labor that they weren't willing to um, to cut it off. Um, now, World War II, because you know, there's this huge surge. We talked about this when we talked about World War II. This huge surge of Filipino um, of Filipino mobilization within the United States for the, for World War II. I mean, the Philippines were invaded. Um, so a lot of Filipinos that were veterans um, there were certain conditions um, but if they were if they were veterans um, if they had lived in the U.S. before the war they could opt for citizenship um, so that's one other thing and once they're citizens then they could try and bring in more family etc like there is once you are are a citizen there are opportunities to open up family migration um, so that's one change that happens right after World War II um, and the Philippines, of course, gets independence, um, but that's not going to happen until 1946. And 46 to 64, um, they are going to allow Filipino migration into the U.S. There, are gonna be, there is going to be a visa system, et cetera, but the numbers um, through that sort of official system are going to be very, very low. Um, however, that's not going to mean migration itself is going to be incredibly low. There will still be migration through other means. Okay, so let's look at some of the exceptions. Um, one of the exceptions is the War Brise Act, which we had talked about um, before when we talked about Korean, um, Korean migration mostly. Um, so there are going to be, you know, there's a bunch of U.S. bases in, in the Philippines. And so we will continue to see throughout that period all the way through the 1990s mostly um, and early 2000s when a lot of those, um, those deals fall through. Um, a lot of women who marry a U.S. soldier or a U.S. sailor um, or a Marine um, coming to the United States as war brides. So that's one major source of migration. Um, and because the bases are so big, it is a pretty significant source of migration. Um, a second one is going to be labor into Hawaii. Um, that will continue pretty unrestricted in, until the... Um, basically until... On the 1960s, um, when things will shift a little bit, um, when Hawaii becomes a state, um, family migration. um, This is something that we'll find throughout this period. Um, It's, you know, it's once you have someone who is able to get citizenship and, you know, legal residence, they are going to be able to find um, there are ways to bring family over. Um, and family migration, you know, regardless of if it's migration from Asia, migration from Europe, migration from Africa, etc., cetera, family migration has been one of the central components of migration throughout U.S. history. Um, and that will that will be um, included in Filipino migration um, throughout this period, but especially before 1964, it's one of the routes in. Um, and then also for a lot of men, um, enlistment into the U.S. Navy, um, the U.S. Navy will still be recruiting Filipinos, um, recruiting them not as like there is this. Um, it's part of the the defense agreements that we have with the Philippines, are that Filipino um, citizens can go into the U.S. Navy, um, and until like the sixties, um, they were still allowed only into certain berths. Um, they couldn't be. You had to be a, a steward. Um, a steward or work in the mess hall um, in some other form and the, or a musician. Um, now, this isn't true for Filipino Americans enlisting in the Navy, right? So it's not, if you're, you know, if you're a Filipino American, if you're a U.S. citizen and you enlist in the Navy, you can be, you know, I guess whatever you could. Um, there's probably still some glass ceilings, but there's no official um, lines that you couldn't cross. Um, but for Filipino um, citizens... Citizens of the Philippines enlist in the U.S. Navy, there are only these segregated births. But once they um, retired, um, the opportunity um, to move to the United States, to bring their family to the United States, existed. There are these sort of pathways for that. So that's another source of migration. Um, In these years where the official numbers of Filipino migrants into the United States are very low, there's all of these different exemptions going in. Now, post 1965, um, when the the Immigration Act changes things, um, there is that push for skilled labor, um, and the you know the the place where you're going to see the most change is going to be nurses. Um, the U.S. has a massive deficit of nurses, um, it's still true today. The U.S. needs more nurses and doctors than we actually are able to provide. Um, and there's, there's various reasons for this having to do with how our medical schools are set up, how residencies are set up, et cetera. But while the U.S. has this deficit of nurses, and a lot of countries have a deficit of nurses, um, the Philippines had um, basically a surplus of nursing schools. One of the things that, that was set up, and this is during the U.S. occupation, was a, a number of nursing schools. Um, and there's, there's some racist shit going on there too. Um, they didn't want to set up medical schools the u.s didn't want to set up that many medical schools they didn't they did not want to qualify filipino men as mds it basically it comes down to it um, if you wanted to become an md you had to come to the united states and go through medical school here um, and the replacement in the u.s empire's vision was they would set up nursing schools um, and you know the, it comes from it comes from this kind of racist background but you know the one of the things that happens is that the Philippines has really quality um, and high volume turnout of nurses, and but even by you know now it's it's pretty widespread. You see Filipino nurses across. Um, I mean, definitely across most of the the English language world, you know, in Canada, etc. But throughout the world, um, you have a lot of Filipino nurses. So. after 1965 um and especially in the 80s and 90s it will start growing even more a lot of people coming over um as nurses um they're able to come over and again it's it's this family migration right so once someone is comes um you're able to bring over your family you're able to sort of grow the community out um and that's Yeah, that's kind of one of the standards of U.S. migration. That's how it's actually not even just U.S. That's one of the ways people migrate You you migrate to family. Um, The 1960s, 70s, um, and into the 80s, the Philippines, in part because of these changes in the 1965 regulations, in part because of close ties and connections between the Philippine government and the U.S. government, um, Filipinos will be the largest source of Asian migration into the United States, um, including into Hawaii. Um, and this will allow Filipinos to become one of, uh, what's it, go back to that, the third largest um, migrant group or Asian um, population within the United States um, and the largest migrant, migrant group, um, not just population, between the 1960s and the 1980s and 90s. And One of the questions people might have is is why I leave um, and one of the reasons is man things were still economically pretty rough in the Philippines when we read Carlos Bulazan, um he talks about how things are you know in the nineteen tens um twenties, and it's most of the systemic um inequality in the Philippines that was there during the Spanish Empire um remained there under the Americans, and it will continue. Um, throughout the American rule there, um, and then add on to that, right? So you already have that level of economic disparity between the wealthy and the poor. Add on to that the Japanese um, invasion during World War II, um, which was absolutely brutal, especially in some of the cities. Um, some of the rural areas less hard hit um, because the Japanese just weren't there, um, but in a lot of the cities, a lot of the places where there were... Um, there's a lot of interest in in you know pulling crops out of out of the Philippines as well. Um, they were it was it was awful. Um, I mean, there's the battle of the Phil- uh, battle of Manila, um, or the second battle of Manila, um, where the Japanese literally just went on a rampage, and just started slaughtering civilians wholesale, because they were they were losing the war, they were going to lose Manila, um, and they wanted to murder as many people as they could before they left. Um, so especially right after World War II, a lot of people are looking for anything because things are very rough then. Um, a lot of, uh, there's a large group that comes to Hawaii um, that were actually brought in to break one of the strikes, um, except the guys who are striking belong to the IOWU, the International Longshoremen's and Warehouseers um, Union. And a lot of the guys who were sa- the sailors aboard the ship also belong to the IOWU. So they signed all of the Filipinos that were being brought in to break the strike. They signed them all over to ILWU um, because they were fleeing from, from you know massive poverty, but they weren't stupid either. They, they knew the union would be on their side before the, before the planters would be. Um, and so when they got off the ship, they all just joined the, they joined the strike instead of going off and um, becoming scabs. Um, so things were pretty rough, and they, they do improve... In the like the Philippines do improve um, economically under independence, but it's a very uneven improvement. Um, Marcos is going to be the dictator there for a long time, Ferdinand Marcos, um, and there will be segments of the population, like that, tended to con continue to do well. Um, those who had wealth continued to acquire wealth, but the improvements for the poor were very. It was, it was happening, but it's happening very slow, um, and very unevenly. Um, and, um, so a lot of people were, were fleeing because of the economy there. Um, other people were fleeing, um, well, maybe not fleeing, um, in terms of economy, but leaving because of the economy, some people actually were fleeing, however, because of the dictatorship itself. Um, and one of the things that, that comes out of this is during this era, um, It starts off sort of informally people are just leaving to get work elsewhere because the work is elsewhere and then sending some money home and sending some money home and we end up by the 1970s with um seven percent of the economy on average Um, and since the 2000s it's even more but seven percent of the economy um, of the philippines comes directly from people abroad sending money home to families and so it becomes, labor migration becomes like a, a key part of the economy itself. Um, so people are encouraged to leave, people are encouraged, like a lot of the nurses um, are, are educated specifically with a sense of, okay, we want you to leave, go someplace else, be a nurse there, send money home, and that will heat, help, help sort of float your family, but also help float the economy in general. Um, so there's a real push for people to leave um and there's certain there's sort of certain fields where where this has been especially uh prevalent uh, prevalent um a lot of a lot of shipping um a lot of cruise ships um apparently most of the like a lot of entertainment like a lot of um cover bands throughout asia um, that people hire like our Filipino bands and then, uh, and nursing again. Um, okay. So let's take a look at the numbers again, you know, 1910, relatively small. Um, these numbers are excluding Hawaii, by the way. Um, some of these early numbers, um, but 1910, 1920, 1930, you know, this is all that early labor migration, um, And you see 1930 to 1940, there's pretty much a freeze on migration. And then 1940 to 1950, and most of this change um, from 45,000 to 60,000, most of that is going to be post-46. And then from there, from 1950 to 1960, so even before, again, once again, even before the 1965 laws, Even while officially there's only a very limited number of visas available, because there's all these other routes of migration um, in terms of um, war brides, family migration, uh, migration into Hawaii, um, we'll see again this huge boom even before 1965. But then after 1965, we see this sort of continued um, 100,000 plus um, changes per decade. And then, um yeah by the by the time we get to the 1980s 1990s um the growth continues and continues and continues um and again it's this the same kind of similar thing we saw with the chinese migration where because later migration is so big a lot of the communities formed by the early migration where people will move to those communities. They'll have connections to those communities. If you arrive as a Filipino migrant in the 1970s, you're going to look for other Filipino people. There are Filipino communities in, in um, parts of California and Hawaii, et cetera. Um, but a lot of those earlier communities will be overshadowed by later migration. Um, and that's, that is something we're going to be taking a look at um, as in the, the, com- the weeks to come. And again, when we look at numbers, here's a much more detailed map um, because that's what I was able to rip off of Wikipedia, which is where I get most of the maps. Um, probably shouldn't admit to that. Um, but anyway, this is uh, a much more detailed map. But again, it's, you look at it, it's, it's San Francisco, um, Seattle, Hawaii, and that little bit of Alaska um, where you see relatively large populations per capita um and it's uh yeah it's it's following it's following and and of course New York and new jersey um, it's following existing communities it's largely going where existing communities are um, and then sort of growing out from there um, and before I forget one of the one of the conflicts between the existing communities and new migration is going to be between people who are um, you know, born and raised in the United States and forming an identity that's very much rooted in being American um, and um, people who and, and migrant communities, right so first generation migrants and the children um, and sometimes grandchildren of of former migrants. Um, so there will be some tensions that we're going to be looking at in the, the coming weeks. So the final group we're going to look at in this new era of migration are going to be South Asians, um, primarily Indians, um, but also a large number of Pakistanis, um, Nepalese, um, and Bangladeshis, and some some Sri Lankans. Um, Let's see, that's a, look, South Asia. It's kind of a weird thing when in the, a lot of times in the West Coast and Hawaii, Um, When people talk about Asian migration or Asian Americans, we tend to not think about India, Um, but Indians are one of the largest groups of Asian Americans. Um, And yeah, it's primarily post-World War II migration. So we're gonna take a look now. Now, unlike with Filipinos and Koreans and um, to a lesser degree Vietnamese, you won't really see much pre-1965 migration because most of the South Asian um, population was obviously in India and Pakistan, etc. But even a large chunk of the, the diaspora, South Asians living outside of South Asia are going to be within the British Empire. There isn't that US military connection. There isn't going to be the War Brides Act isn't really gonna be relevant here. There's not going to be much migration um, coming in from um, until 1965. Now that 1965 law that looks for migrate, um, it basically opens up migration to the whole world and says, we're gonna look for people who are coming with these um, skill and education sets. Um, That will greatly affect um, Indian migration. And even though, like again there is a existing indian migration or sorry existing indian american population there are people in the united states that came in under merchant, merchant exemptions etc um there's a number of small hotel chains um that by the 1950s um will be um there'll be areas where like a lot of the hotel trade is going to be controlled by indian um Indian migrants and then their family so indian american families second generation etc however um still pretty small um what's really gonna that 1965 act is going to change things and it is going to be this probably like predominantly white collar um change it's going to be a lot of doctors it's going to be um a lot of engineers a lot of professionals um until the 1990s there isn't that massive growth in in part because there isn't that same sort of like until the 1990s there isn't a huge boom in engineering and and medicine etc in um, india itself after the 1990s there will be um, so there will be this sort of huge wave of migration coming in um, from those white collar professions um, and a lot of the migration will actually be, especially before the 1990s, will be coming in from other parts of the British empire. So it'll be people coming in from Fiji, from the Caribbean, from, from England, um, from Canada who are of South Asian descent, but whose families had already migrated, um, elsewhere into the British empire. And then this is a sort of a secondary migration into the United States. And yeah, this is going to be reflected in the numbers, um, yeah, There's going to be a huge like, like this chart doesn't even bother between in the years between 1940 and 1980. But there, you know, a lot of that jump is going to come between 1960 and 1980s, um, and then you know from 1990 until until 2000, 2010, um, huge numbers of people coming over. Um, and this is going to be, you know, again primarily coming out of that sort of white-collar thing or white-collar community, because there are so fewer um, pre-1940 migrants compared to the Chinese-American community, compared to the Filipino-American community, there isn't going to be as much of an established sort of Indian-American community um, that is going to sort of be a route for this new migration to come into. There aren't going to be, you know, little delis, little... Um, like you're not going to have that sort of like where Chinatown is able to um, be a base for a new Chinese migrant community that's not really happening here um, but you also aren't going to have the same sort of a little bit of tension between existing Indian American communities and um, this new migration because it's those existing communities are so small um, and if you look over on the other side of the chart this kind of breaks down you know we're, we're, Indian American um, is just one of the different South Asian groups. Um, and so you, you do see, you know, between 2010, 2017, um, major changes, you know, growth in um, the Indian American community. But there's also these other, um, these other communities. There's uh, Pakistanis are the next largest, um, but also Bangladeshi, um, Nepalese, etc., um and you know the sri lankans kind of a much smaller group um, and obviously there's going to be there's going to be tensions and ties between the different groups um you know pakistanis and indians will have you know clear when you look at pakistan and and india i mean there's some very clear um religious and political divides between the two countries and that will also um, float over into some of the migration um, and the migrant communities that are formed. Um, but also, you know, India and Pakistan have a lot of cultural and historical ties that for um, the children of the migration, um, for people who are, you know, born in the United States, um, some of those cultural things will also be part of creating a broader um, South Asian or Desi-American Um, community or identity that isn't really as obvious with perhaps with the first generation Um, so just kind of throwing that in there and finally i look at at numbers and one of the things here is that the even though you know california and new york partly because they have the largest urban centers um, are going to have large um uh Indian and this this particular one is Indian, it's not South Asia in general um, are going to have larger populations because you don't have those established communities um, the way you do with the Chinese and the Filipinos you 're not going to have as concentrated um, populations you are going to see people um, spreading out over more and more of the United States um, so that's one of the the kind of distinctions when you're looking at you know Indian community versus um, the Chinese Americans um, aren't going to see as sort of uh, concentrated um, because there there aren't those existing communities, um, those long-standing Chinese communities, those long-standing Filipino communities. Um, that's not really going to be as relevant with with Indian migration. So you won't see those really um, focused, especially West Coast and Hawaii. Um, that sort of focus on. On those parts of the united states okay so that's pretty much going to wrap things up you know the last couple of weeks or this last week and a half uh, mostly looking at migration um, the focus has really been about um, what's happening in, in global politics and then how that's going to affect migration and then after this, we're going to be able to go back to the actual sort of Asian-American part of this, not migration, but but the experiences of people um, who are coming in this new migration or who are affected by this new migration um, in sort of carving out a space for themselves as individuals, um, themselves as individual ethnic groups within America, are into this or themselves as part of this broader Asian-American community that's that's kind of developing and forming in the 1960s. Um, the next, very next one we're gonna watch, or next class, we're actually gonna watch a video um, on uh, Filipinos and the Delano Grape Strike. Now, the Delano Grape Strike is this huge moment in labor organizing in the United States in farm labor organizing, and for the Mexican American community. But and this is when you know Cesar Chavez becomes huge. Um, but this is also um, one of the things that's that's left out of that is that a lot of the well not a lot but some of the the key leaders and some of the key strikers in that that moment um, were Filipinos, um, and so that's kind of that's going to be kind of breaking us a little bit out of this this look at new migration, um, and a reminder to the sort of the existing um, communities that are already there. Um, and a lot of the the labor struggles and other types of struggles um, that are still defining um, what it means, especially for the working class um, population of migrants. And actually, like yeah, some of the guys involved in the Delano thing are migrants. Uh, most of them are, um, but long-standing migrants who have been around since the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, etc., from that sort of Bolsonaro era. Mm-hmm.